Before I begin, um, we were remiss. We forgot to thank someone for all that they've been doing throughout this camp week, and that is the, uh, the wonderful person who's been setting up the snacks for us out here every morning, and that is Carissa. So let's give her a big hand. I'm going to um, read a few passages of Scripture for the opening this morning. Uh, Genesis 3.16, you can follow along if you have your Bibles. Genesis 3.16, 1 Corinthians 7.15, and Hebrews 13.4. And my talk is basically going to be an examination in some way of each of these passages or see how these flesh out in our lives. So Genesis 3.16, 1 Corinthians 7.15, in Hebrews 13:4 This is God's word To the woman he said I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing in pain you shall bring forth children your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you 1 Corinthians 7:15 But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. And then Hebrews 13.4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Pray with me, if you would. Heavenly Father, we, we beseech you this morning for the grace that we need as we, as we discuss a topic such as this. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would grant to us all wisdom, understanding, a heart of compassion, that you would help us understand aright what you have revealed, your heart, as it has been expressed in the Word, and that we, will, we would follow suit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> when approaching such a difficult topic, as this topic obviously is, it's necessary, I think, to remind ourselves of why we have to talk about it in the first place. Divorce is a reality because sin is a reality. And the wages of sin, as Scripture teaches, is death. Spiritual, physical, and relational death. Sin divides. Sin eats away at a relationship. Sin poisons and kills relationships. Sin breeds strife and division between God and man, 
between man and man and between man and woman. Sin breaks covenant bonds. You could say that divorce is the death of a marriage. Divorce, as all other broken relationships, as death itself, the ultimate relationship destroyer, is the fallout of our divorce, our broken covenant with God. And of course, it was not what was intended. Broken covenants are not what God designed or had in mind. Divorce is not what God had in mind when he brought the first man and woman together. But there it is nonetheless, spreading like cancer throughout the world, throughout history, ever since the first married couple broke trust with God and so also with each other. In that passage in Genesis 3.16 that we read to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. He shall rule over you. Right there, you hear in seed form, you hear the beginnings of the sentence of death that is pronounced over human relationships to follow throughout the rest of history. That sentence of death pronounced upon the relational bonds even of the most intimate relationships, parent and child, death is going to come in. When you hear pain and childbirth, think ultimately miscarriage. Think my child dies in infancy. Think children who die in, in accidents. It gets to that point. And when you hear your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you, think of every marital conflict you can imagine. Think of all the abuse that there is in the world. Think of polygamy. Think of every heinous sin because it's right there in seed form. That, that passage is like the, the seed bed, the cursed seed bed out of which all of it's going to grow. Things like divorce will grow up in the world. As I was thinking of preparing, as I was preparing this talk, um, Pastor Keel and his talk uh, that he gave to the presbyters, and I wish everyone could have been there for that, it came to my mind. Um, as you know, Pastor Keel and his church in Escondido went through uh, quite a tragic affair recently, and the question why comes to everyone's minds. How does something like that happen? And I was thinking about that talk in relation to our talk this morning and this topic of unwanted divorce. Why? In that talk, Pastor Keel spoke about how in the world as God created it, as God blessed it, things work, and they work the way they should work. You have the book of Proverbs, and it, it says, if a man does this, if he walks in this kind of wisdom, if he, if he does these things, the outcome will be positive. It will be successful. 
And Pastor Keel said, and that's right. And we should be seeking to walk in that wisdom, looking to God to, to bless and give fruit to the, to the labors of our hands because that's how it, it should work. But then he reminded us that right next to Proverbs is another book, Ecclesiastes, which says, yes, but wait a minute. Things don't always work now the way they're supposed to work. This world is not the, the blessed garden any longer where one plus one equals two in terms of godliness and its reward. Now things are broken. Now things, no matter how faithfully you go about it, might end up broken, not coming out the way you expected. This is true of raising our children. It's, it's a sober reminder. We've heard a lot of good things this week about how we should raise our children, what the scriptures teach about a godly Christian home and godly Christian marriages and raising our children up, the next generation to bear witness to God. We've heard wonderful, good, wise advice and counsel, and we should put it to practice. But let's not deceive ourselves. There's no formula for success. We live in a broken, sinful world, and things won't always come out the way they should. Again, ask Pastor Keel and the church in Escondido if, if they weren't surprised at the way things came out. And most of us, all of us, know godly Christians who raise their children in the nurture and administration of the Lord, do the best that they can, seek to be faithful, not perfect, but faithful, and children walk away. Walk away from the Lord. And then now marriage. You go in, you've done all the premarital counseling, you've read the books, and it's still something happens and it breaks. The way things should work given God's good creation versus the way things often work because of the introduction of sin into God's good creation. And that means there's, there's ultimately no formula for success in marriage or child-rearing. We do what pleases God and we act in godly wisdom, but we have to walk by faith, understanding that in this context, as in a blessed context, but especially now in a cursed context, God has to give the growth and the fruit or it's going to fail. Now, when you look at divorce itself and think about it, we, we talk about the grounds for divorce. and One of the grounds, um, or, excuse me, not the grounds for divorce, but you think about the things that end a marriage. And one of the things that end marriage is right there in our marital vows till, until death do us part. Death ends a marriage, as I was speaking in my talk on singleness. But in some ways, the death of marriage by divorce can be and is worse than the end of a marriage by the actual death of a spouse. At least 
in the case when your spouse dies and your marriage ends, at least in that case, you're not burdened with the, the terrible thought that your spouse didn't want to be with you. You're, you don't have to think of that. They, uh, they wanted to be separated from me. No, in the case of a, a, a spouse who dies, they probably would have wanted to stay with you a bit longer if they could. Maybe they're thinking of glory and how much better that will be, but they don't want to leave you. And they surely didn't want to go be with somebody else, which is often, again, what's involved in the death of marriage through divorce. And they, the spouse who remains after the divorce dies or after the, the marriage dies in divorce, the spouse who remains has to live with a certain indignity that accompanies that divorce, even if it wasn't their fault, even if they were biblically, biblically justified, there was good grounds for it, they still live with a certain indignity. They, they feel, whether it's deserved or not, they feel a certain shame. And sometimes in society that shame is heaped upon them. You don't have that with widowhood or if you're a widower. Divorce is ugly. Divorce is precisely something that God did not intend and something that God hates. But we have to understand until Christ returns and puts everything to right, until he consummates the salvation and kingdom which he inaugurated in his first coming. Divorce is a reality because sin is a reality. But we face it as Christians, as we face all types of death, not as those who have no hope, but as those whose hope is grounded in Christ, the one who rose from the dead and reconciled us to God and to one another in Christ. Now the section, not enslaved, called to peace. This morning I want to focus in on how we should minister to those who did not want the divorce in the, in the first place. You might have a lot of questions about the other party and so forth, but I want to focus in on the spouse who didn't want this to happen. Those who had their marriage and their spouse told them one day, I want out. Those whose marriage died because of the sin of the other. We're going to be focusing on the Christian whose spouse turned away from them, the Christian who remains after the marriage bond is broken. And Paul speaks to this. In uh, 1 Corinthians 7.15, Paul makes it known that the believing spouse who remains is not enslaved. And as I take it, that means that he or she is no longer married when their unbelieving spouse turns away, breaking that bond. They don't have to consider themselves perpetually married any longer. They're, they're not married to that person. They've been free. They're free from that person in that marriage now because it's broken. 
And I take that passage, and I, when I read 1 Corinthians 17, it, it applies, first of all, it's speaking, first of all, of that person who they were already married when they became a believer. They became a believer. They were married already. And um, now they're, they're married to somebody who's not a believer, right? As I read 1 Corinthians 7, that's how I, I understand it. Um, they were an unbeliever themselves prior to their conversion, uh, and they were married to an unbeliever, but now they're a Christian, and Paul is addressing that person. Their unbelieving spouse wants to leave, and he says, let them go. You're free. You're not enslaved any longer. This is actually the background for what Paul says, and you see it in 1 Corinthians seven eighteen. He says, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. The point that Paul is making there, um, as I made this point earlier this week, is that if your non-believing spouse to whom you were married prior to your coming to Christ wants to remain married to you, great. <laughs> remain married. Please the Lord. Who knows? You might be able to win them over by your godly behavior. But if they want out, Paul says, if they break the marital bond, the believer is free. That is, they are no longer married to an unbeliever. And if they really need to, if they don't have the gift, as I was talking about in singles talk, they can marry another in the Lord. But I want to go a little bit deeper and add that I don't think it's in, improper to consider Paul's instruction there as applying equally to what we might have considered a Christian marriage that also ended in divorce. Let me tell you how I get there. Christian marriages ending in divorce is sadly not a hypothetical situation, again, in this cursed, fallen, sinful world. But what would the dynamics look like in the case where you have two Christians who are married and a divorce is the result of that marriage. What it would look like, I think, is something like this. You would have a professing believer dissolving the marital bond with their believing spouse through adultery or desertion, which was not able to be remedied by the church. The, a, a professing believer through adultery or desertion, some sin-destroying or some marriage-destroying sin continued in that, unrepentant, and it was not able to be remedied by the church, and the, married, the marriage ended in divorce. They sought to remedy this, though. The church was faithful, let's hope, let's pray. The church was faithful in that process, trying to remedy this, trying to get repentance and reconciliation to come out of this. It would have looked, I hope, like Matthew 18, 15 through 17, Resulting finally, if that sinning, professing believer did not repent and continued on in that sin, it would result in them finally being treated by the church no longer as a brother or sister in the Lord, but as a Gentile and as a tax collector. In other words, as an unbeliever. And this brings us to the point where we started. When a believer is married to an unbeliever who wants out, 
who wants to dissolve the marriage. In that case as well, the church has declared that person is an unbeliever. They want out. You're free. You are not enslaved. And if you need to, you can marry again, but only in the Lord. We are called to peace, but when peace is not what is desired from our partner on the other side, when unity in marriage is not what they cherish, if instead they desire to dissolve the bond of marriage, if they continue in unrepentant sin, the kind of sin that destroys the relationship, the believer is free, and we remain in the peace of God. We did not want this. Really, no one in their right mind would. Christians are not like the pagans of old who would bury the living wife in the grave of her dead husband. Put that image in your mind as you think about Christians who have gone through a divorce. Because sometimes the church forgets that. We are not like the pagans who take the living spouse and bury them in the grave of the dead spouse. Paul says the believing spouse who remains, if their unbelieving spouse wanted to go, they are free. See, they're not tethered to that zombie. They have to be dragged around the rest of their lives to them. They're not tethered to the living dead, the walking dead. They're free. Now, having said all of that, let's, um, let's redirect to something a little more upbeat, something more positive, uh, nurturing and strengthening marriages. Again, remembering, this is us acting faithfully. This is us walking in faith, looking to God for fruit and growth, but recognizing that we live in a fallen world. There's no formula. This is why, again, we have to walk by faith, not by formulas, by knowledge of, if I do this, this, and that, it's going to come out this way. We walk by faith. So how do we nurture and strengthen marriages in the church? I want to begin um, by stressing something up front that might seem very obvious, at least to those of us who have been married for more than a few years, and that's this. Um, you have to be very self-conscious and deliberate about this. It doesn't happen automatically. You have to think consciously, regularly, about nurturing and strengthening your marriage. It has to be on your mind. It's like, um, it's like sitting there thinking about, uh, I think about going to the gym and, and getting stronger and, and getting more fit, but you don't actually go. No, you have to do it have to exercise this. You have to be uh, deliberately engaged in this. It does not happen automatically. You cannot fly on autopilot when it comes to the sanctification of any aspect of your lives. We're not quietists who, who sit back and think, well, if God wants me to do something, then he'll motivate me to do it, and I'll just sit here and wait. We're not quietists. Like everything else worthwhile, it takes effort to develop a strong, healthy, God-honoring marriage. It's like a quote I recently came across and posted on our church Facebook page. A farmer prays for a harvest and then works the fields. 
He doesn't pray for a harvest instead of working the fields. That's just not how life in covenant with God works. God's covenant grace doesn't cancel out our covenant responsibility. As Paul said, therefore, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your marriage. Work out the sanctification of your marriage with fear and trembling, because it's God who's working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, we enter into marriage and self-consciously seek to work on it, to improve every day, to sanctify our marriages, precisely because we have this promise that God is the one working, precisely because God is graciously working in us. That gives us the hope, the confidence that we can work. We can, we can see strength and maturity in our marriages. An hour of prayer and an hour of work, as the saying goes. Nothing worthwhile is easy, and if you really want to strengthen and nurture your marriage, you have to dedicate yourself to actually doing it. Asking yourself every day, how can I be a better husband? How can I be a better wife? And asking your husband or your wife, how can I be a better husband? How can I be a better wife? Reading books together. Taking the time to go on retreats, uh, go on dates. Really just nurture the marriage. Nothing worthwhile is easy. It won't happen automatically. Now in the home, working on marriage is obviously a full-time pursuit. Scripture calls husbands to love their wives, and wives are called to respect their husbands, and you notice there's no time-limiting qualifier set on that. From this time to this time, from, uh, what, 11 a.m. on Sunday to 12.30 p.m. Sunday, love your wives, husbands. doesn't say that. Love your wives all the time, and respect your husbands all the time. Now, I, I want to take that and, and bring James, the epistle of James, into it a little bit. And, uh, and John, in his first letter, someone might say, oh, I love my wife. But the wife who read James might say, well, show me. Show me. You, have, you say you have this, show me. And the husband, likewise, can say the same to the wife. He says, oh, oh I respect you, even though I'm sarcastic and I roll my eyes at you all the time and... I do respect you. Well, show me. Love and respect are not merely something that we subjectively feel for someone. They're also something that we show to someone, something that we give to someone. So from the very beginning of a marriage, love and respect ought to be deliberately cultivated every day. And this starts with communication with active listening and honest and open sharing. In 1 Peter 3, 7, husbands are called to live with their wives in an understanding way. In an understanding way. The verb there in Greek involves not only a sharing of the same space with one another, 
but of sharing of life as well. Sharing of self in the context of establishing a home with one another. Peter says that husbands are to live with their wives, share this life with their wives in an understanding way. That is, they're to do this with knowledge, with thoughtfulness, with wisdom. This means, gentlemen, that your wife, or if God gives you one, your future wife, will have to be the object of your careful study. And guys, you know how to do this. You know how you, you can get very single-minded on something, right? And just dive in. Well, make your wife that kind of object of your study. You've got to learn who she is, what she likes and doesn't like. What are her fears? What are her aspirations? What is it that she values? You have to know what her sinful struggles are and how you can best minister to her with respect to those sinful struggles. And the same applies to you ladies. But I think the reason Peter exhorts men to it is because that kind of comes easier to women, I think. Men have to be told directly by God, you need to do this. Women just seem to be, uh, by nature, better at it. To become understanding, though, you have to, you'll have to, again, you'll have to communicate. You'll have to ask questions. You'll have to listen to the answers. After all, as the Bible says, who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So I recommend, it, especially if this is an area of conflict or potential conflict, or if there is an area of conflict in your, in your marriage, or it may be a, an area of potential conflict later, that when you're communicating, when you're asking, when you're listening, when they give an answer, this is what bothers me. This is what scares me. This is what I fear. This is what I value. When they give an answer like that, restate it back to them in your own words so that you got it. You, they know that you know, and you're both on the same page. And you really understand your spouse. In addition to communication, which, guys, I'm, I'm going to, I think that always needs to be stressed for us. Communicate with your wives. Talk to your wives. They'll want to talk to you. So open yourself up and talk. Be, be loving and communicate with your wives. But in, in addition to communicating, um, nurturing and strengthening a marriage in the home will involve a new way of thinking. Uh, we've already been hearing some of this in the good talks that we've heard this week, but a new way of thinking is, is this. It's no longer me, it's we. Self is redefined in a marriage. The two, as the Bible says, are now one. If you get this and you start to think of it and work it out in actual practice, it will help strengthen your marriage. As Paul says again in Ephesians 5, 28 and following, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. 
This sadly, this loving as your own self, the other, is again more difficult, I think, for men to grasp than for women. More difficult for us to grasp and live out for women. And I could get into why that is, and it has to do with there was a time when Adam was by himself. And Eve never was. It was right away, here's your husband. This is your life in marriage, in communion with another person. For a while, Adam had nobody. So sinful men are going to keep drifting back to old Adam. Maybe I, I was better off being by myself. But anyway, men, um, it's going to be harder for you to think this way, this new way about marriage. But don't despair, brothers, because you have the Spirit of God. You have the Spirit of Christ. But you have to work out this salvation in your marriage, this oneness, the oneness that you have with Christ, which you're supposed to image now in this bond with your wife. You work it out because God is at work in you, both to will and to do. There's a time and a place for me and for her to do our own things. I mean, we have different hobbies, different things. But generally speaking, the atmosphere in a Christian marriage is us. It's we. There's much more I, I could say. Um, you could look at the handout I gave the other day. Um, but let me just say one more thing in terms of nurturing and strengthening marriage in the home. Husbands. We've, we've said this the other night, too. Listen to your wives. Again, she was given to you to be a helper, a helper suited to you, so be wise and, and humble and grateful and receive that help. She has opinions, she has insights, particularly in relational matters, which she is ten times better than you at, so you would be, again, an idiot to ignore or dismiss her. Take what she says seriously, factor it into every decision you make, Factor her into every decision you make. If you do this, if you listen to her, if you receive her help in marriage, she will respect you because you're making it very clear that you love her and you value her. Now, in the church, as for strengthening and nurturing marriage in the church, it begins exactly where you would expect with the faithful preaching of the Word of God and faithful attendance in worship. Husbands and wives need to hear Christ and Him crucified preached every Sunday. They need to be exhorted to live out of their union with Christ by faith, to die to self, and to live each for the other in Christ. They need to be taught to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And for this to happen, they need to attend worship regularly and have family worship and in, engage in all the means of grace we've been um, hearing about again this week. Churches need to think deliberately about spending time on teaching on the subject of marriage. Pastors need to be reading good books on marriage that they can recommend to the elders and then to the married couples or couples preparing for marriage. And maybe not just recommend books, maybe do a class. Maybe have your elders do a class. Maybe bring these things up during pastoral or elder visitations. There's a wonderful place right there to nurture and strengthen marriages in the church. Regular pastoral and elder visitation. And if your church isn't doing that, if you guys are not being regularly visited, 
at least, at least once a year, then you need to be getting on the elders and the pastor's case about that because that will really help. If the visitation is looking to check, do a pulse check on how the marriage is going. So churches need to be teaching on this subject. Pastors need to be learning more and more about this subject so that they can teach better on this. Um, officers need to be engaged with uh, married couples and those preparing for marriage uh, in terms of visitation and discipleship. And also couples that have proven healthy, happy, again, not perfect, but faithful marriages. Scripture says, come alongside those who are preparing for marriage. Walk beside them. Don't, don't impose, like, what's worked for you is the God-given way that dropped out of heaven. Don't impose, but, but be there uh, to give wise counsel and, and gentle direction, good words of advice. Now, I also mentioned um, visitations. Let me come back to that for a second. Not only is there a positive benefit to pastoral and elder visitations,